Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's the millennium, a thousand years of enforced peace on earth under the rulership of Jesus. Today, what the millennium is all about. From the Moody Church in Chicago, this is Running to Win with Dr. Erwin Lutzer, whose clear teaching helps us make it across the finish line. Today, Erwin Lutzer continues a series on The King is Coming, Preparing to Meet Jesus. Now, the eighth of ten messages, focusing on that time when the King reigns in His kingdom. I begin my message today with a question. When you pray, thy kingdom come in the Lord's Prayer, what are you praying for? What are you expecting God to do? What do you think this kingdom would be like if it were to ever come? The idea of utopia is something that is in every human heart, and uh, every generation has looked forward to utopia all the way from the time when the word was invented by Thomas More in the year 1516 when he wrote a book entitled Utopia. Well, today I'm going to speak about utopia. It's coming, some things about it in God's time and in God's way, and we're also going to talk about your part in this utopia. So I want you to listen carefully. Today I have many passages of Scripture to give you. In some instances I will simply summarize them and in other instances quote them. And then eventually we will turn together in the Scriptures, but I need to do some background work first. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, God came to David and said something interesting. He said, David, after you there's going to be a son who's going to build the temple and I will discipline him when he becomes evil. But in the end you will have to know that your house and your kingdom is going to endure forever. Has that happened? House meaning genealogy and kingdom meaning territory over there in Israel where David ruled? I don't think so. When Jesus was born, when he was conceived in Mary's womb, you remember the angel said this to her. He said, he shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Has that been fulfilled? Has Jesus reigned over the house of David and over the tribe of Jacob? Has that happened? I don't think so. Jesus has never ruled from Jerusalem. He's never ruled over the territory that David ruled over. What is this business of Jesus ruling on earth? You know, it's interesting that in the Old Testament you have chapter after chapter oftentimes devoted to this idea of utopia when the Messiah reigns. May I invite you, and you can if you wish, turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 2 for just a moment. Isaiah chapter 2, you've read these passages and you've asked yourself the question, where do they fit? Isaiah chapter 2, it says, verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills. All the nations will flow into it. The house of the Lord, speaking of Jerusalem, 
Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion, by the way, Zion is a poetic name for Jerusalem, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He, Messiah, shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Most assuredly, that has not happened. You know what's interesting about verse 4? If you go to the United Nations building in New York and then you cross the street to the plaza where there is a wall, on that wall is inscribed one half of verse 4. Not the whole thing, just the last half. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's all that's there. Obviously, they didn't include the first part, did they? That he, that is Christ, shall judge among the nations. The United Nations may be doing many good things, but one thing they are not doing is trying to establish peace on our earth under the authority of Jesus. So they snatched the last part of verse 4, and then at the base of it, you simply say, Isaiah. They didn't even give the reference lest somebody happened to look it up and realize that it's a messianic passage. And that's why that wall is referred to today, and you can Google it on the internet. It's referred to today as the Isaiah Wall. Well, the scripture is going to be fulfilled, but it's going to be fulfilled when he, Jesus, judges among the nations. There are so many passages like this. I shall turn to another one. Very briefly, Isaiah 11. It says, His delight, speaking of Christ in verse 3, shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. In other words, he's not going to govern by hearsay. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be on the belt and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. And then notice this, the wolf and the lamb shall dwell together. Another text says the lion and the lamb are going to lie down together. Well, that isn't happening today. If you notice very carefully, today when the lion and the lamb lie down, when the lion gets up, the lamb is missing. The leopard shall lie down with a young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. What is Isaiah talking about? He's speaking about the rule of Jesus on earth, the coming kingdom. Now, what we have to do is to put this in context. If you've been with us, and this happens to be message number eight in a series entitled, When He Shall Come. You know that we have emphasized that it is best to see the return of Christ in two stages. First of all, Jesus comes for his church and we are with him in glory. Then Antichrist arises 
and you have the tribulation period, you have the temple being built in Jerusalem, and as we learned last time, there's this glorious appearing of Jesus to the Mount of Olives, and the nation Israel looks on him whom they have pierced, and and multitudes of Jewish people who are alive at that time recognize Jesus to be the Messiah, and they look on him whom they have pierced, and they believe. There are several reasons for the glorious return of Christ that we spoke about last time. One reason is to judge the world because of its evil, and the judgment, as we learned, is terrifying. But there's another reason, and that is to establish the kingdom, to finally fulfill all the promises that God made all the way through the Old Testament about a coming golden age, about utopia with Jesus to reign. And so that's why he returns to Jerusalem to finally fulfill the promises. Now, when you look at it that way, you begin to understand here that this uh, particular age, this particular age of the coming of Jesus is very important. The topography of Jerusalem changes. We learned last time that the Mount of Olives splits in two. Jerusalem is exalted. It says Jerusalem is going to be on a plateau at that time. And what a kingdom it is going to be. Now, because we have to hurry, I have to answer another question. Who gets into the kingdom? Who gets into the kingdom? Well, for this, let's turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, and I'm giving you time to find it. It's on page 831, if you have a Bible like mine. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. You'll notice it says in chapter 25, verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. I understand that sheep and goats don't get along very well, and sheep are usually quite docile, whereas goats are very unruly. So this would be a familiar image, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. And so there's going to be a separation at the end of the tribulation period when some people go into the kingdom and some do not. Many people, if we took time to read the text, they think here that Jesus is changing his view of salvation because he says that you'll get into the kingdom because you did kind things to my brothers. They were in prison and you visited them. They were hungry and you fed them. They were naked and you clothed them. So is that the way to get into the kingdom? We need to understand, remember, during the tribulation period, there are those who do not take the mark of the beast. They are under persecution. They are jailed. Many of them are killed. And during that period of time, many Jews are coming to recognize Jesus as Messiah. And those Gentiles and others who recognize that these Jews are believing, if these Gentiles are believers, uh, they're going to do all that they can to support the Jews. They are going to bless them. And what we find here is not the root of faith, but the fruit of it, showing that true faith always is seen by works. Those who uh, took care of the Jews, who refused to take the mark of the beast, 
the Jews who believed on Jesus and trusted Jesus, now recognizing him to be the Messiah, they obviously are in the company of those who are blessed because they too have put faith in Jesus Christ. Bottom line, all those who enter into the kingdom will be believers, but they'll be in their natural bodies. You might ask me, Pastor Lutzer, why has God revealed these things to us? Well, it's not to satisfy our curiosity. The reason that prophecy has been given to us is to help us to live differently, to see that we must live in light of eternity. As the Bible says in 2 Peter, in light of the fact that all these things are going to be destroyed, what manner of people we ought to be in all holiness and godliness. That's the real purpose of prophecy. And that's the reason I wrote the book entitled The King is Coming. We're making this resource available to you, and I might say that this is the second to last day when we are making this available to you. For a gift of any amount, you can receive it. The subtitle is 10 Events That Will Change Our Future Forever. The King is Coming. And if you ask when, well, I can tell you this, it is one day closer today than it was yesterday. But one thing is certain, the King is coming. We think that this book will help you in your relationship with God and help you to live differently in this present world. Thanks for helping us. That was Erwin Lutzer introducing The King Reigns in His Kingdom, the eighth in a ten-part series of messages on The King is Coming. With The Devil Under Lock and Key, the redeemed in the millennium will find even nature changed as the lion will dwell with the lamb. Next time, more teaching on a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus. The King is Coming is also a book by Erwin Lutzer, and we'll send it as a thank you for your gift of any amount to support Running to Win. Just call us at 1-800-215-5001. That's 1-800-215-5001. Online, go to OfferRTW.com or write to Running to Win, Moody Church, 1635 North LaSalle Boulevard, Chicago, Illinois, 60614. For Dr. Erwin Lutzer, this is Dave McAllister. Running to Win is a ministry of the Moody Church.